You cannot fix chronic metabolic disease until you fix liver insulin sensitivity. It's not like the weight comes first, the insulin comes first. Insulin blocks leptin. And if your brain can't see the leptin, your brain thinks it's starving. And so you're going to eat everything in sight. We have to have food that protects the liver and feeds the gut. When you understand what the difference between healthy and unhealthy is, you understand how processed food is poison. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. I'm so honored, friends, because I have been a follower of Dr. Robert Lustig's work for years, years, years. He's done a lot of research on fructose, for example. That's how I first came to him. And then recently he released his book, Metabolical, which, friends, this book, oh my goodness, it's one of those books that I am just telling everybody about all the time. It was really an eye-opening, mind-blowing shocker of a read. You guys know me. I was already hesitant about processed foods and that whole industry, but Dr. Robert Lustig has really dived deep into what is actually going on, and it's shocking. I was supposed to air this episode way, way later, like in the fall, but it was so mind-blowing and contains such valuable information that I decided to release it as soon as I could, which is now. So I really think you guys are going to love it. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash metabolical. That's M-E-T-A-B-O-L-I-C-A-L. Those show notes will have a complete transcript, so definitely check that out. There will also be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. And then also check out my Instagram, Melanie Avalon, for another episode giveaway, also for things that I love. If you are enjoying this show, it would mean the absolute world, world, world. If you could take a brief moment and write an iTunes review, I read all of those reviews and they help so much more than most people realize. So thank you guys so, so much in advance for that. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Robert Lustig. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is a long, long, long time coming. I have been a follower of this guest work for so long, ever since I originally read his book, Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease. And that book took a really hard look at the role of sugar and processed foods and what it's doing to our health and lifestyle. And I had a whole obsession with it because I've been haunted by the concept of fructose for quite a while. I've been really torn about actually if it is healthy or not healthy. And I've done a lot of research and it has haunted me. So this man's work has been really present in my mind. But for today's show, he released a new book, Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. Friends, 
This book, I honestly mean this, I think this book should be required literature in medical school. The amount of information in it about our current food system, the relationship between big food, big pharma, the industry, people, personal responsibility, our health, the environment. I can't even express how much I learned in this book. Basically, while I was reading it every single day, I was learning things and telling everybody everything that I had learned. (laughs) So I am so excited about this conversation that I'm about to have. I'm here with Dr. Robert Lustig, pediatric neuroendocrinologist and New York Times bestseller. Dr. Lustig, thank you so much for being here. It is my pleasure, Melanie. And to be honest with you, I don't know who you're talking about. (laughs) That doesn't sound like me. Well, you've done really, truly an amazing job. And we just talked before the show, I I sent you over my... (laughs) my list of potential questions. And it was the version I sent you was long, but my notes are like 20 pages. So many things I could ask, so many directions we could go in. But I think to start things off, I'll just ask a very basic question, which is like, why are you so passionate about this focus and the role of processed food in health? Like what's, what's the big deal here? I don't have a passion. I have the science. And I guess the science is my passion. You know, I've, you know, had a lot of different experiences within clinical medicine over the last 40 years. You know, I, if you want, I mean, I can do a quick, you know, one sentence timeline of 40 years of research. I went from brain tumors to obesity, to insulin, to metabolic syndrome, to fructose, to public health, to addiction to technology, to finally now policy, you know, and they all string together. And, you know, it's not that I've been a zealot or a, you know, sort of a bellwether for any of these things. It's just where the science took me. But it was, it's been very clear, you know, taking care of patients for the past 40 years, that something is very wrong. And the empiric data, the science, not just my science, but everyone's science, is pointing to ultra-processed food as the problem. And I know from my own experience, when we got our patients here at UCSF off ultra-processed food, they got better. You know, we have the data. We've published the data. So this book is to make it clear what the problem is. You cannot solve a problem if you don't know what the problem is. And thus far, we have thought calories were the problem. We have thought saturated fat was the problem. You know, we've thought a whole slew of different things were the problem, and it's not. It's, in fact, you know, what has happened to our entire food system over the last 50 years, and we have to undo it. This is so fascinating. And I think particularly with processed food, I mean, I think there's a general consensus now. People think that either it's bad or at least it's not healthy or whole foods are healthy, but it's a very vague feeling, I think, about processed food. And you do a really beautiful job of actually looking at what is processed food and and the, the subtle nuance between food and then what has been done to our food. So like for a definition to start with what is processed food? What what makes a food processed and what's the difference between food as nutrition and food as what you call poison? The new mantra out of everyone's mouth is food is medicine. And that's not quite true. In fact, actually real food is medicine and real because real food is food. 
The question is, is processed food food? The argument I make in the book is that no, actually processed food is not food. Processed food is poison. Now, that sounds very strident. It sounds very inflammatory and incendiary, and I understand that people will be taken aback because, you know, after all, you don't want to be putting poisons in your body. You know, there's an inherent, you know, defensive reaction that that brings up. But in fact, when you understand what the difference between healthy and unhealthy is, you understand how processed food is poison. And in the book, I very specifically describe the two parameters that have to be met in order for any given thing that you put in your body to be healthy. And they are six words, two clauses, protect the liver, feed the gut. Any food that does both is healthy. Any food that does neither is poison. And any food that does one or the other, but not both, is somewhere in the middle. And that's what the empiric data show. And I spend a fair amount of the book explaining how come that works and why this is actually the definition of healthy that, in fact, not only should we adopt, but in fact, the FDA and the USDA and the EFSA and all the other regulatory agencies should adopt as well. Now you ask me the question, okay, what is processed food? And the answer is... There are different gradations. There are different levels. My colleague and friend, Dr. Carlos Montero at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil, actually came up with a very good food classification system. I think it's very useful to think about. And I can sort of, you know, let me give you an example. So it's called the NOVA system, and it divides all food into four classes of processing. So the first class, class one, would be, say, an apple you know, an untouched apple, nothing done to it. The second would be apple slices. So mechanical dispersion, you know, some, you know, shall we say simple processing, you know, it's still, it's still apple. It's still, you know, would give you the same level of nutritional support that say a full apple would. The third one would be apple sauce. Okay. So complete dissociation of the food matrix, possibly with the addition of a preservative or maybe even some added sugar, although you know you can certainly buy unsweetened applesauce at the store, and you should. And then finally, the last one would be an apple pie, all right? And that would be an ultra-processed food where numerous foodstuffs that normally don't exist in nature come together and, in fact, added sugar, changes in the fiber content, etc., in in part also because of the cooking. These different classifications confer different risks. And it turns out that when you actually look at the empiric data, it is only that NOVA class 4 group, the ultra-processed food group, that confers any significant morbidity mortality. Problem is that that's 56% of all the food consumed in America, and 62% of the added sugar is in that class four. So this is the problem, and this is what the food industry is pushing. You know, know, that's their juggernaut. That's their gravy train. And they've also learned that the more sugar they add, the more, you know, product they sell. So the difference between class four, the jump from three to four, is like additives... Additives, combinations of ingredients that normally are not found in nature, usually the addition of sugar and the removal of fiber. 
Okay. And historically, when did that first start? Oh, well, it's gone on forever, but it really picked up in frequency back in the 1950s. You know, prior to 19, prior, you know, at, at the time of World War II, you know, processed food basically meant spam, you know, the original processed food. And that was really for the military, you know, in order to be able to carry it off into battle and to be able to get it to, you know, to, to front lines and stuff like that. We didn't have a lot of processed food in our diet or in our grocery stores prior to World War II. It really all, you know, came after that. There was, you know, the breakfast cereals that appeared in the 60s. There was Swanson TV dinners, you know. I mean, a lot of these things, you, you know, people, you know, very specifically remember. And then, of course, we got the sodas and then the diet sodas, you know, adding to that. And ultimately, ultra-processed food really sort of took over. And then in 1975, it got even a bigger boost with the advent of high-fructose corn syrup. And then it got the biggest boost of all in 1977, when the McGovern Commission convened to try to determine dietary guidelines for Americans, and we were all told to eat less fat. Well, you can't eat less fat unless you process it out. And if when you process the fat out, the food tastes like cardboard, in which case they had to process something else in. And what do you think that something was? Sugar. So that's, that's sort of the, the short you know, history of how we got to where we are today. And it's just been, you know, sort of gaining steam and, you know, it's been a juggernaut ever since. Yeah. For listeners, I will just say this once and just keep remembering, get metabolical because if you want the full, full history, it's all in there. So a question about that processed food, and you talk about this a little bit in the book about all the debates about different diets working for different people and can all diets work. So do you think processed food is the the missing piece for why different diets seemingly work. So like people on like a keto diet or people on a vegan diet, maybe it's not so much the macros as people often eradicate processed foods when they adopt those diets. Well, the fact of the matter is, you know, people only, when they talk about the macros and macronutrients, you know, they're talking about protein, fat, carbohydrate. That is a very inappropriate method for thinking about food classification. And I make this case in the book, you know, you know, umpteen times. You know, first of all, a protein is not a protein. A fat is not a fat. A carb is not a carb. A calorie is not a calorie. And to be honest with you, a fiber is not even a fiber. And you'll notice that fiber is not in any of those macronutrients. People think fiber is what you throw in the garbage after you juice the fruit. Turns out the fiber is absolutely essential essential. And the reason is because the fiber is not for you. It's essential for your bacteria, for your intestinal microbiome. Because when your intestinal microbiome is happy, they make you happy. And when your intestinal microbiome is starved, they rebel against you. They actually eat the mucin layer right off your intestinal epithelial cells, denuding the inside of your intestine and making it much more likely that the bacteria in your intestine, and some of them are not good guys, some of them are bad guys, will actually lead to perturbation of that intestinal barrier. And there are proteins that hold the intestinal cells together called tight junctions. And when those tight junctions become dysfunctional, you end up with a phenomenon called leaky gut. And lipopolysaccharides and cytokines and full bacteria even can get from your intestine into your bloodstream 
heads straight to your liver, cause systemic inflammation, leading to insulin resistance and starting the chronic metabolic disease process. So you have to protect your liver and feed your gut. And fiber is not even on the list of macronutrients, yet it is perhaps the single most important thing you need to do in order to stay healthy. One of my biggest fears in life is LPS and the, the release of endotoxins from our gut bacteria. And I'm just, I'm haunted by gut dysbiosis. Okay, this is sort of an esoteric question because throughout human history, we've evolved to different, adapt to different diets and our gut microbiome has likely evolved with us. So processed food, like, is it possible that our gut microbiome could ever adapt and evolve? Like, could we adapt to this or, or is there a reason that we can't adapt to processed foods? Well, that's a good question. I'm going to be very honest with you, Melanie. I don't know the answer to that. Let me tell you what I do know. Maybe that'll inform the question, but it's, it's, a, it's a hard question. Evolution takes a long time. <laughs> it's not something that happens, you know, overnight. Let me give you an example of how this could work. So this actually goes to the dental literature. So if you look at the DNA fingerprint of uh, calculi, dental calculi in fossils from way back, uh, there were certain bacteria, for instance, proteobacteria that used to be in our mouths. And today, those bacteria are actually deep down in our intestine. So like, for instance, Firmicutus. Firmicutus used to be in the mouth. Now it's way down in the intestine, causing problems there. And the assumption is that somehow, and for some reason, those bacteria migrated. They used to be happy with the you know environment they found themselves in, and now they're not, and they had to go find another place to hide. And in the process, they now have set up shop in our intestines and actually end up causing disease. So, you know, the bacteria are not necessarily mutating per se, but they are adapting to the environment they find themselves in in the same way we adapt to the environments we find ourselves in. And the question is, you know, is that good for them and good for us? And in this case, I would argue it is not good for us. So, you know, could this be, you know, one of the reasons for our current, you know, epidemic of modern disease is that the bacteria are not where they belong? Yeah, it's a possibility. Is there a chance that evolution could fix that? Well, I would say probably not very much. You know, that, that doesn't seem likely given the fact that this has gone on over millions of years and we haven't figured it out yet. So I'm a little loath to put any uh, stock in that. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples. 
meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come... Definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. 
unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. Yeah, that absolutely blew my mind in the book about the the changing of the gut microbiome populations and our mouth versus the intestines. It's really scary, actually. I'm hesitant to ask this question because it's almost a question not like nobody would be forced to do this. But if you had to choose, we talk about this a lot on the intermittent fasting podcast because we see with fasting and calorie restriction that there's a lot of health benefits activated by that. If there was a dichotomy of fasting and calorie restriction, but with processed foods compared to overeating, but normal foods, the potential harm of foods and fasting and calorie restriction and overeating. Do you have thoughts on on those two options? Not that you have to choose, but... What you're asking is, which is better for you? Intermittent fasting or eating real food? That's what you're asking. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the question is, well, okay. I First of all, I am a fan of intermittent fasting. I'm not against intermittent fasting. But the question is, why does intermittent fasting work? And the answer is, whether you like it or not, and, and to be honest with you, I don't know how you feel about this, so I'm just going to you know, blurt it out. It's in the book, so you know, I'm, I'm on record. The reason intermittent fasting works is because it gives your liver a chance to burn off the extra energy it has stored as fat. Okay? So when you fast... The first thing that goes is the glycogen, right? Wrong. The first thing that goes is the liver fat that's accumulated that doesn't belong in your liver. The liver fat before the liver glycogen on a daily cyclical basis? If you've developed liver fat, and then the question, of course, is where'd the liver fat come from? Okay, your, your liver's not supposed to have any fat in it, okay? It is supposed to have glycogen in it, and your liver can store any amount of glycogen that it needs. That's why marathoners carb load before a race is to try to raise their liver glycogen so that they have a ready source of glucose available during the course of the race. But when you overdo it and when your liver is forced to have to store extra energy, it it doesn't do it as glycogen, it stores it as liver fat. And this is a process called de novo lipogenesis, new fat making. So this isn't fat that's being imported from your dietary fat. This is fat that's being made right there in the liver, and the substrate that makes it is sugar, in particular the fructose molecule. So fructose basically has a limit on how fast it can be burned, and if you exceed the you know the consumption, if your consumption exceeds your capacity to burn then your liver has no choice but to take the extra and divert it to liver fat. This is exactly why alcoholics have fatty liver, because they're taking in alcohol faster than their liver can metabolize it too. And so the liver has no choice but to take the excess and turn it into fat as well. And so that fat, of course, sets you up for cirrhosis. Well, guess what? It Sugar sets you up for cirrhosis. And today, Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the leading leading cause of liver transplant in the United States, having overtaken hepatitis C. 45% of Americans today have fatty liver disease and don't know it. 
And the reason is their diet because of the sugar in their diet that they don't know about. And we know that because we've measured it. So the bottom line is people are walking around with these fatty livers. And when your liver is fatty, that means it's not working well. And when your liver is not working well, that makes it insulin resistant. And when you're insulin resistant, that means your pancreas has to make extra insulin for the liver to do its job. Okay. Pushing on it. That's why the pancreas drains into the liver, not into the inferior vena cava, is because the liver is the primary target of insulin action. And so when your liver is sick, your pancreas has to work harder, kind of like, you know, the assembly line when somebody basically, you know, falls asleep or, you know, gets sick on the assembly line, you know, everybody else has to work harder. So bottom line, you raise insulin levels all over the body and insulin's the driver of all these chronic metabolic diseases that we've been talking about. So getting rid of the liver fat is priority one. You cannot fix chronic metabolic disease until you fix liver insulin sensitivity. And if the liver fat is the driver of that liver insulin resistance, then you have to get rid of it first. Well, turns out intermittent fasting burns that liver fat first. Won't burn all of it in one, you know, one session of intermittent fasting. But if you keep doing it over the course of time, you will likely be able to reverse that process. And so that's why intermittent fasting is good. But the question then comes up, well, why did you have the liver fat in the first place? And the answer is, it's your crappy diet. So if you ate properly in the first place, you wouldn't have the liver fat that you would have to intermittently fast for. So your question, in a way, is kind of moot for that reason. Me and my co-host, Jen, we debate this all the time. She's on the fasting train, and I'm, I'm more on the food train. <laughs> the food train is a much easier train to be on, to be honest with you, except if you live in a place where there is no real food, which, are, you know, which is unfortunately a lot of urban areas in America and actually suburb and, and rural areas in America, to be, to be honest with you too. I'd love to actually go on that train, but some really quick questions about the liver. I'm so obsessed with this topic. So the amount of liver fat, like in grams, for example, how much liver fat can the liver store? Right. So this is a very important concept and I'm going to spend a minute on it. There are not, there's not one fat depot. There are three and they confer different levels of disease and they also have different capacities. And so to understand how metabolic syndrome works, you ha- really have to understand these three fat depots in detail. So the first fat depot is the subcutaneous fat. For lack of a better term, we'll call it the big butt fat. Okay. It's the fat you can see. Everyone hates that fat the most because after all, everyone wants to get into their size two bikini or their, you know, speedos. Okay. Now, how much subcutaneous fat do you have to gain before you start manifesting metabolic dysfunction and sickness? The answer is, for the most part, most people about 25 to 30 pounds. So you can carry about 25 pounds of excess subcutaneous fat before you will start showing signs of insulin resistance. Okay, got it? Like, does the level of the potential for subcutaneous fat gain determine when a person becomes metabolically ill? Absolutely. And by the way, different races have different capacities. 
So for instance, African-Americans have a much greater ability to store subcutaneous fat at baseline, whereas Asians seem to have a much smaller ability to store subcutaneous fat at baseline. And that's one of the reasons why when an Asian gains even five to seven pounds, they start manifesting metabolic syndrome, whereas an African-American can gain sometimes even 50 pounds before they'll start manifesting metabolic syndrome. So basically, you have different size buckets, okay? And when you overflow the bucket, you get into trouble, but everybody's got a different size bucket, okay? But the bucket is the, you know, what you can see. The second fat depot is your visceral fat, or for lack of a better term, your big belly fat. Now, it turns out your big belly fat is much more dangerous than your big butt fat. Your big belly fat drains right into the liver. It doesn't enter the systemic circulation. And so it's much more likely that if you generate big belly fat, visceral fat, you will become insulin resistant on that basis. Now, the thing about the belly fat is it is completely unrelated to the subcutaneous fat. So you can actually be losing weight, but gaining visceral fat, all right? And the proof of that is clinical depression. So people who are clinically depressed actually lose weight. They don't even want to eat. They have melancholia. They actually have anorexia. They don't want to eat, but their cortisol levels are so high that they are diverting energy into their visceral fat and their visceral fat grows. And you can measure that on magnetic resonance imaging. So increased visceral fat is way worse for you than increased subcutaneous fat. This is the story of the apples versus the pears in terms of you know the body shape. All right. And so the question is, how much visceral fat can you accumulate before you start getting sick? And the answer is about four pounds. So 25 pounds for subcutaneous fat, four pounds for visceral fat. And for the most part, visceral fat is the fat you cannot see because it's inside, you know, attached to your organs. And so you might see it in terms of your waist circumference, or you might not. And then finally, there's the third fat depot, the liver fat. Now, the liver fat is the worst because it's right there. Okay, it doesn't have to travel anywhere. It's causing problems right where it lives, right there in the liver. And it turns out you only need 200 grams of liver fat, about half a pound, before you start seeing metabolic dysfunction and insulin resistance. So, 25 pounds of big butt fat versus four pounds of big belly fat versus half a pound of liver fat. And you can't see the liver fat or the big belly fat. The only fat you can see is the big butt fat. And that's unfortunately the only fat that anybody seems to be concerned about. So we have a problem because we're not even understanding what's going on and neither does your doctor. So your doctor says, if you lose weight, you could take care of this problem. The fact of the matter is, if you could just got rid of your liver fat, you could take care of this problem. Circling back to the question about the fasting, the liver fat and the liver glycogen, have they done studies on a person who has full tanks of both liver fat and liver glycogen and then fasting, what gets tapped into first? It's the liver fat? Yeah. So the liver fat will, will go first. You know, the glycogen will go too, but the liver fat will go not that rapidly, but it'll go. And that's the point is you got to get that down. We showed in our study of kids, so we took kids with metabolic syndrome, 43 children with metabolic syndrome. Latino and African-American, 
with lots of liver fat. And we showed that we didn't even have to get them to lose weight. All we had to do was take the sugar out of their diet. And in nine days, their liver fat fell by 22%. And as the liver fat fell, their insulin sensitivity went up and their insulin secretion from their pancreas went back to normal. In other words, we reversed their metabolic dysfunction just by taking the sugar out of their diet with no change in calories and no change in weight. So when you took out the sugar, the liver fat dropped though, correct? Right. Well, we put in starch in its place because if you take the sugar out of a kid's diet, they're going to lose 350 to 400 calories a day out of their diet. And if you do that for 10 days, you know, they might lose weight. And then, you know, the critics would say, well, of course they got better. They lost weight. So we didn't want these kids to lose weight. We wanted them to stay the same weight or even gain weight. So we had to replace the 350 to 400 calories in sugar with something else, something equicaloric. We gave them refined starch. Now, I'm not suggesting refined starch is good, but compared to sugar, it's a walk in the park. So refined starch is going to raise your glucose excursion and you know, increasing your glucose excursion would raise your insulin release and that would potentially cause weight gain. Well, guess what? When we did this maneuver and got rid of the sugar and put in the starch, their glucose and their insulin excursions went down, not up, went down. And the reason was because we had so fixed their insulin resistance. Their insulin sensitivity improved by 25% in just 10 days. Again, with no change in calories, no change in weight. So we basically reversed the metabolic dysfunction unrelated to weight or calories because we got rid of the liver fat. Okay. So and I, this is like a tiny nuance, but I'm just haunted by this question, this chicken and egg question of weight, insulin, and metabolic syndrome and health and all of that. So they didn't lose weight, but they lost the weight of the liver fat. Right. So the root cause between, and I know what you talk about in the book, but I just want to like talk it out right now. The root cause between insulin issues and energy toxicity, chicken and egg. So it's not quite chicken and egg. It depends on the person. Okay. And one of the reasons this is so complicated is because not everybody's the same. There are people who over-release insulin. David Ludwig has demonstrated this. People up in at the University of Laval, there's a Quebecois cohort that increase their insulin release in response to a glucose load. These people hyper-secrete insulin. Their pancreases are primed to over-release insulin in response to a carbohydrate load. And so these people, because their pancreases are sort of, shall we say, twitchy, they have twitchy beta cells. And so they go, boom, you know, and, they, and all of a sudden, you know, their insulin levels are super high, really fast. They drive energy into fat quickly. And so they get obese very rapidly because of their carbohydrate consumption, because their pancreases are primed to release insulin. Conversely, most people, probably 80% of the population, they've got a problem where when their liver gets sick and starts storing fat, now their liver's insulin resistant, and now their pancreas has to make more insulin, even at baseline, to, be, for, to get the liver to do its job. So two insulin problems. So, you know, a person could have either one or both. 
And the only way to know the answer to this is actually for your doctor to do an oral glucose tolerance test with simultaneous insulin levels. Now, we do that. At UCSF, we do that. And the reason we do that is because then we can figure out who's who and target therapy appropriately. But I guarantee you, your doctor does not do that because they don't understand this. All right. But this is the point that I'm trying to make to the general public and also to the medical establishment is, you know, it's not like the weight comes first. The insulin comes first. Okay. The insulin comes first. And we now have numerous, numerous levels of scientific evidence to demonstrate the insulin comes first. And Element has an amazing offer for my audience. You can get a free Element sampler pack. We're not talking a discount. We're talking free, completely free. You only pay $5 for shipping. And if you don't love it, they will even refund you the $5 for shipping. I'm not kidding. The sample pack includes eight packets of Element, two citrus, two raspberry, two orange, and two raw unflavored. So the raw unflavored ones are the ones that are safe for your clean fast, and the other ones you can have in your eating window. Word on the street is the citrus flavor makes an amazing margarita, by the way. I am loving Element, and I think you guys will too. Again, this is completely free. You have nothing to lose. Just go to drinkelement.com forward slash Melanie Avalon. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T forward slash M-E-L-A-N-I-E-A-V-A-L-O-N. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. So like that first situation you just said where the pancreas is overproducing insulin, wouldn't it still require excess energy? for the problem to manifest. Sure. And the point is that that excess insulin is driving increased food intake at the level of the brain, all right? Because insulin blocks leptin signaling. So your brain doesn't know you've eaten, so you keep eating. So what we showed in these people who over-release insulin, these insulin hypersecretors, is we can put them on a low-carbohydrate diet and get their insulin down. And now they won't overeat. In fact, they now, you know, eat properly, and they start losing weight because their food intake has gone down, because now their leptin works, because we got their insulin down. Insulin blocks leptin. And if your brain can't see the leptin, your brain thinks it's starving, and so you're going to eat everything in sight. But when your insulin goes down, now your brain can see the leptin, in which case, now you're going to moderate your portion size and you know the kinds of foods you're going to eat much more effectively, you know, like normal. Yeah. And I guess the reason I'm so haunted by it and thinking about it is this concept of, you know, personal responsibility that you talk about in the book and how, because it sounds like with what you just said with the insulin, if there's a condition where there's hyperinsulinemia, in theory, if you fought that nail and tooth, like it would just be really, really, really hard to follow a calorie restricted weight maintenance or weight loss diet? Yeah. First of all, I mean, look how well that works. I mean, like nobody, you know, I mean, it's real rare, you know, for a calorie restricted diet to be able to work. I mean, you hear about it in anecdotes, you know, in People magazine, but, you know, short of that, you know, there's no science that actually demonstrate that that works in any meaningful way. Here's, here's the counter. Here's the exception that proves the rule that I'm, you know, that I'm not lying. We have an epidemic of obese newborns. Now, they didn't choose what they got to eat. 
in utero, did they? All right. So how come they're obese? And the answer is because of mom's insulin resistance, because that mom's insulin resistance and her hyperinsulinemia drove excess placental transfer of carbohydrate, particularly glucose and fructose. And everyone said fructose doesn't cross the placenta. Oh, yes, it does. And actually causes liver fat in the newborn, in the fetus before the baby's even born. And that causes the fetal hyperinsulinemia, and that causes excess fat deposition. And we know it because you can measure it with DEXA scans in newborns. Okay, four separate studies, Russia, South Africa, Israel, the United States. Okay, newborns now weigh 200 grams more on average than 25 years ago. And when you look at that 200 grams, it's not muscle, it's fat. So every baby is carrying around a half a pound of fat that they didn't use to carry around. And what type of fat in the babies? Well, it tends to be subcutaneous, but it can be liver fat too. All right. I mean, you know, everybody thought the Gerber baby is such a good thing, right? No, it's not. Not even remotely. Another question about the fat in the liver. So when the liver fat fills up and then if you continue increased carb intake, is there significant fat creation beyond the liver or is the majority of the fat gain? Like the, the, there's a the whole argument about de novo lipogenesis from carbohydrate overconsumption and how there's really not a huge amount that you actually can create even in a state of massive overfeeding. So when you hit the, you know, the full liver, like making fat from carbs, do you actually make a lot of fat that you gain weight from? Or is it just that you just are storing, you know, all the fat that you eat because you're topped out? Whether the, the liver stores it or exports it out has to do with whether it can package it. We actually have data that shows that the amount of choline in the liver determines that. So if, you're co if you have lots of choline, you'll export it out as triglyceride, in which case then your triglycerides will rise which is, of course, a setup for obesity and heart disease because your high triglycerides precipitate heart disease. Or if your choline levels are low in your liver, then you won't be able to package it because choline is part of phosphatidylcholine, which is part of ApoB100, which is the export mechanism for fat out of the liver so you can't get it out. Fat will precipitate in the liver as a lipid droplet. Now you got fatty liver disease. And then that puts you as a setup for diabetes and other fat phenomena associated with metabolic syndrome. Whether the fat leaves the liver or stays in the liver, it still causes problems, just different kinds. With a personal responsibility and coming back to the processed food industry, you talk about whether or not what is happening with the processed food industry is an immoral hazard. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, like just the role of, because, okay, I think it can seem conspiratorial if you think about the government institutions and the processed food industry and intention and what is happening. And if you don't really know what's happening, it can sound really like a conspiracy if you're like, that there's really dark things going on. Well, there are dark things. The question is, is it, you know, with malice of forethought? That's the question. Are they trying to kill you? Okay. And that, the answer to that is they're not trying to kill you. They're just trying to take your wallet. That they are trying to do. And they're all trying to do it. 
because there's a lot of money involved. It's about the money. They are not trying consciously to kill you. It's not, this is not murder. This is more like negligent homicide. They're just callously insensitive. How's that? Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> so in the book, in the book, I discuss the difference between a term called moral hazard and a term I made up for the book called immoral hazard. Now, what's the difference between those two? They sound alike. Moral hazard is the economic ver- version of schadenfreude, you know, basically profiting off the misery of others, right? So schadenfreude is taking delight in the misery of others, right? If anybody's ever seen the musical Avenue Q, there is the most wonderful song in it called schadenfreude, and everyone should go you know, look it up on Spotify, and you will laugh your head off. It's kind of dirty, but it's very funny. All right. Now, what the insurance industry engages in is moral hazard. So they didn't create your disease, but they sure are happy enough that you got sick. And the reason they're happy you got sick is because they get to raise your rates. And they can't raise your rates unless you get sick. So they raise your rates way higher than any sickness that you ever got. Okay. So it's the casino model pay to play and set the rates. Okay. And they can't, you know, they can't make money unless you enter the game. So they were really happy when you got sick. All right. Now, Obamacare, and I don't care if you like Obamacare or don't like Obamacare, it's irrelevant to me. Obamacare did one thing. What it did was it capped insurance company profits at 15%. So now those insurance companies can't make as much money off you being sick. In fact, Now, for the first time in their existence, in their 75-year existence, insurance companies actually want you to be healthy. And the reason is because if you're healthy, then they get to keep the the difference, since they can't make the money just by raising your rates. So they don't even know how, because they've never done it before. So this is a problem. But that's called moral hazard. What I'm describing in the book is immoral hazard. And the difference is creating the system to be able to profit off the misery of others. And that's what big food and big pharma and big government have all done. And in the book, I describe how each of them have done it. Because we didn't have these markets before, but we do now. And the reason we have them is because each of them saw the profit and they know what they're doing. And it's only about the profit. It's only about the money. The fact that you die in the process, well, you know, collateral damage. Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits, as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold 
contamination. David's been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, (laughs) drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof coffee. And it is called Danger Coffee. And friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just gotta upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside. 
and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time? That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Friends, You guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the U.S. is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. 
One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Do you think in the the timeline of that historically, so with the processed foods and the profit and the health conditions, so the way it is now, because now I feel like there's the ethos is changing, at least among consumers, like people are looking for organic, people are looking for whole foods. And we see like, sort of like the commercialization of it all. Like if you go to like Kroger or Target, now they have their, you know, brands with their, you know, organic lines and their grass fed beef and stuff like that. They see money in it. Yeah. Like, do you think that's a good thing? That's something I've wondered. Like, is the commercialization of the changes that we would want in theory a good thing? So the question is, is organic good for you? That's what it comes down to. It, does it actually do something? And the answer, it, it does a little something. It doesn't do nearly as much as they say it does, but it does something. So basically, organic means no pesticides, no antibiotics. And that's good. And I'm not going to tell you that's bad. That's good. You know, the goal is to get to real food and all of those pesticides and antibiotics basically make your food not real food. All right. So, you know, you can take a strawberry and turn it into not real food by, you know, spraying it with a pesticide. So pesticides are bad. I'm not telling you they're not. On the other hand, they keep the food from being eaten by the, uh, you know, by the locusts. And that's good. But at the same time, you know, those pesticides have effects in your body. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do is look at DDT to know, you know, that pesticides ultimately are not good for you. They interact with receptors in your body, in particular, the estrogen receptor and the glucocorticoid receptor. Okay. And, you know, our livers can metabolize some pesticides to some extent, but invariably they tend to be too, you know, greater than our capacity to metabolize them. And so they can make us sick. So I'm, I'm for getting rid of pesticides in our food for all these reasons. But when you think about our chronic metabolic disease and what causes it, and you think about our you know, weight gain and what causes it, pesticides do contribute. They contribute somewhere between 10 and 15%. But it's really the food itself, the ultra-processing of the food, having nothing to do with the pesticides. So there are plenty of things at Whole Foods that say organic that are still just as bad. Okay, because they are loaded with sugar and they have been, and the fiber's been removed. Okay, and other things have been added because lots of food additives can be natural. You know, evaporated cane juice is natural, it's still sugar. All right, so just because it says organic on it doesn't necessarily mean it's good for you. And if you're buying them at Whole Foods, you're just paying more for the privilege. So, what would it take for processed food to be? accepted as toxic? Well, <laughs> first of all, there's a whole bunch of people who refuse to go there and, you know, think I'm a rabble rouser and, you know, a, uh, you know, a, 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 a fear monger. I would argue I'm actually anything but, you know, the point is you have to know what the problem is. You have to, you know, identify the problem before you can fix it. And the reason I wrote this book is 
to lay out the argument for why ultra-processed food is the problem. And I dare anyone, anyone, to, you know, argue the science. You know, if you want to argue my rhetoric, fine, but you cannot argue the science. And when you understand the science, you understand that ultra-processed food is at the base of what's going on in our health and healthcare system, and also, in fact, our environment today. The reason, the reason people don't understand this, and the reason why you get, I get blowback, is because they think the diseases that we are currently experiencing en masse, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, lipid problems, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, polycystic ovarian disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, all these chronic metabolic diseases, they think they are diseases. They have ICD-9 codes. Doctors learn them in medical school. There are medicines to treat each of them. So they think these are the diseases. The point I make in the book is, no, that's incorrect. These are the symptoms of disease. These are not the diseases themselves. These are the symptoms of disease. And in fact, all the medicines we treat these diseases with, they're not fixing the disease. They're just treating the symptom. So high LDL, that's the symptom of the disease, not the actual disease itself. The disease itself is underneath, and I'll talk about those in a moment. The high blood pressure, it's not the disease, it's the symptom of the disease. The high blood glucose, it's not the disease, it's the symptom of the disease. The low bone mass, osteoporosis, it's not the disease, it's the symptom of the disease. So then, well, what is the disease if these are the symptoms? And, the, and each of the, and all the medicines we use, you know, just treat the symptoms. So what is the disease? Well, they are eight separate pathologies, eight processes that go on inside the cell, and they go on all the time. And the question is, how well are they running? When they're running well, you'll be 110 playing tennis. And when they're running poorly, you'll be 40 years old in a wheelchair with two stumps on dialysis waiting for your next stroke. All right. And it's all about the food. So here are the eight pathologies, the eight subcellular pathologies that actually drive all chronic disease. And I go through each of these in the book. One, glycation. Two, oxidative stress. Three, mitochondrial dysfunction. Four, insulin resistance. Five, membrane instability. Six, inflammation. Seven, methylation. Eight, autophagy. There's no ICD-11 code for any of those. Doctors don't even know most of those. The only one they know maybe is inflammation. And when you think about the medicines, none of the medicines that we currently prescribe for any of these, you know, quote, diseases, touch any of these subcellular pathologies because they can't get there. They can't get to inside the cell where the problem is. For the most part, most of them, not all of them, but most of the problems I just mentioned, all eight of them, most of them are because of mitochondria. Okay? You have mitochondrial dysfunction and you can't get medicines to the mitochondria. There's no medicine for the mitochondria. They're unreachable. So all the medicines we throw at it, they're not fixing the problem. All they're doing is fixing the symptoms of the problem. And if you only fix the symptoms of the problem, you're not fixing the problem. The problem's going to get worse. Okay, Like the first sentence of the book, there's a wasp in your attic. What are you going to do? Kill the wasp or find the wasp's nest? You have to work upstream of the problem if you're going to fix it. 
working downstream of the problem only fixes the result. You have to fix the cause. And modern medicine is not fixing the cause. And that's why I wrote the book, is to explain that you can't fix the cause. You can prevent the cause. And you can only prevent it with food, real food. So I guess the only pill that would work would be one that that would get rid of the food. <laughs> that would like... <laughs> well, get rid of the food. So here's the problem. Remember, we started with protect the liver, feed the gut? Mm-hmm. Okay. So any food that protects the liver and feeds the gut is healthy. Real food protects the liver and feeds the gut. Number one, it's low sugar. So you're protecting the liver because you're not flooding it. Okay. And feed the gut, you know, the fiber in real food. So take an apple. Okay. Apples, low sugar, high fiber. Apples healthy. Apple pie is not. Okay. You know, so we've, we've got our, you know, our, our spectrum. Okay. Apple, apple pie, not the same. All right. Now, the question is, our processed food environment is high sugar, low fiber. High sugar for palatability, low fiber for shelf life. Well, unfortunately, that high sugar is flooding the liver, leading to liver fat and chronic metabolic disease. And the low fiber is not feeding the microbiome, causing intestinal inflammation, which leads to systemic inflammation, which also leads to chronic metabolic disease. So we have to have food that protects the liver and feeds the gut, but that's not the food we have. And that's not the food the food industry is pushing because that's how they make their money. And also because after all, that's what's being subsidized, corn, wheat, soy, sugar, all the stuff that kills us. So we have an inherent dichotomy between our biology and our food system. And I know why. I know how it happened. I know where it came from. The question is, how are you going to undo it? So there are ways you could undo it. And that's what I talk about in the book. I give the roadmap for undoing it at each of the stakeholder levels. So whether it's the patient, whether it's the doctor, whether it's the hospital, whether it's the food industry, whether it's the pharma industry, whether it's government, okay, I basically you know, show how each sector could respond in order to fix the problem if we fix the problem together. However, I'm not that naive. You know, I'm not that much of a Pollyanna to believe that that's actually going to happen anytime soon. I'm a practicalist, not a real, you know, not a purist. And the question is, is there something we could do in the meantime? Is there a way we could take processed food and get it metabolized in the body like real food? I'm working on that. I'm actually working on that. I'm working with a company the company is called BioLumen Technologies, and what we've done is we've developed a proprietary fiber that expands in the stomach, that actually sequesters mono and disaccharides, you know, added sugars, in the matrix of this proprietary fiber. Okay, they're little microcellulose sponges, if you will, that are impregnated with stuff that holds on to the sugar, and therefore. The stuff doesn't get absorbed early, thereby protecting your liver, and it delivers that further down the intestine to feed your gut. In other words, it's taking apple juice and turning it back into apples. That's so cool. <laughs> well, and so we're actually testing it now, and if your biohacker listeners want information, I would be very happy to field the information 
If you send me an email, I will be happy to respond to you. My audience would probably love to do this because you mentioned before you were pairing it with research with CGMs. Yeah. So we're looking for people who are not diabetic. If you're diabetic, we can't do this. But we're looking for basically people who have CGMs who would basically, you know, first thing in the morning, eat a test food and measure their CGMs. And then the next day would eat the same test food and with the fiber as a pill, you know, alongside it and, you know, test their CGMs again to see what their glucose excursions are and then be willing to share the data. We can talk more offline about it because I'm not sure when this episode is going to air, but depending on when you want to do this, I can definitely rally. If it's before this episode comes out, a lot of my listeners would probably love to do this. Well, that'd be great. We'd be very happy for that. We could send them the fiber in the mail and they could test it. Okay. This is great. This is exciting. (laughs) Some last few questions because I want to be really respectful of your time. As far as actually implementing change with everything. What was the response on your campus, UCSF, when you guys did a ban on sodas? How did that go down? (laughs) Because of the science, because of the science, and because UCSF is a leading health institution, you know, we should be modeling for the public. Think about it. Where was the first place that cigarettes were banned? Hospitals. Okay. It's a teaching moment. When people enter a hospital, It's a teaching moment as to what their actual behavior should look like. Well, if, you know, there's a fast food franchise in every hospital, you know, lobby, and if you can get, you know, soft drinks, you know, galore at the hospital cafeteria, what are you telling your patients? So we decided to, you know, put our money where our mouth is. And at UCSF, we passed the Healthy Beverage Initiative back in 2015. We got rid of all sugared beverages from the campus and from all vendors who brought food onto the campus and at all UCSF sites. And that is still in place. So if you come to UCSF today, you can't find a sugared soda. We still have diet soda. We still have juice, although I'm not happy about it, but that's as far as the dietitians would let us go, you know, at least for now. Bottom line is we studied the effect on the UCSF employees. So we looked at 3,000 people in terms of questionnaire, and of that we took a subset, 214 heavy soda users, and saw what happened before and what happened after you know, the campus-wide ban on sugar beverages. And what we found was that Sugar beverage consumption went down by half from 35 to 17 ounces per day. And in addition, their waist circumference went down by a full inch and their insulin sensitivity improved just by taking the sugar beverages out of the vending machines and out of the cafeteria. And do you think something like that ever in the future could be something we could see, you know, in stores we're doing it we're doing it in hospitals all over the country we actually have a toolkit for people if you're interested in that you know we can help your hospital go you know soda free we were doing that everywhere the question is would we be able to do this in larger venues and the answer is absolutely 
Now, it would have to be in private venues. Public venues would have a much harder time doing it for all the reasons you can imagine. The ACLU, you know, be breathing down our neck, you know, like crazy. But in a private venue, you can do that. And ultimately, if it works in the private venue, it'll end up being, you know, working in public venues. The bottom line is that policy is still in place five years later, and all we've gotten is positive feedback on it. And by the way, it hasn't hurt cafeteria sales at all. Yeah, you said people just buy more water, basically. (laughs) Solves that problem. Something that blew my mind. So the generally recognized as safe list is privatized. So that means I can't look up the list to see what's on the list? No, you can look it up, but it just means that the FDA doesn't even know what's on it. So for for your listeners, G-R-A-S, grass. Okay, it's not what you smoke. Okay, it's generally recognized as safe. It is a list of compounds that the Food and Drug Administration say is safe to put in your food at any level generally recognized as safe. Now, this started in 1958 as a method for trying to unburden the Food and Drug Administration from having to look at every food under the sun, you know, for for approval. And, you know, at the beginning, there were 170 items on the grass list when when the list was first conceived. Today, there are more than 10,000 and because there are so many, so the first question is, do you really think there are 10,000 things you can put in your body that won't kill you? That's, that's number one. Number two, when the number of items started building up and building up and building up, in 1997, the FDA had Congress pass the FDA Modernization Act, also known as was it, uh, FEDAMA. Food and Drug Administration Modernization Act, FADAMA. And what that did was it privatized the list. So basically, any company can put anything they want on the list. All they have to do is convene a scientific committee to basically say, yeah, that's safe. Now it's on the list. And so there are things that are on the list that the FDA doesn't even know are on the list because the private company doesn't necessarily have to tell the FDA because it's been privatized. So this is a real, real disaster and just an example of how the big government has basically screwed us in terms of this issue. Like I said, and there's a chapter in the book, chapter 24, and the title of the chapter is the USDA and the FDA don't actively kill people, rather they let them die. It's just callously insensitive. So you said for the, the grass list that it's safe in any amount or safe in amounts that people would normally consume? If it's on the grass list, it's safe in any amount. So you probably could make the case for some, if you could show acute toxicity from fructose. Well, our goal is to get sugar, and specifically fructose, off the grass list. Now, the Center for the Science and the Public Interest is interested in doing this. It's, it's, a, it's a heavy lift, to be sure. But it could be done. There are two things that have been removed from the grass list, just two, in all of its, you know, what, 60 years of existence. Nitrates. And trans fats, right? And trans fats. Those are the two things that have been removed from the grass list. So the question is, could we turn sugar from a food into a food additive? Because after all, that's what it is. It's called added sugar. It's added because it's a food additive. So obviously the food industry would fight this tooth and nail because after all, sugar is their juggernaut. It's their gravy train. It's the thing that keeps us coming back for more. 
because it's addictive. So they're not going to be very happy. But, you know, this is what the science says. And, you know, the logic shows that sugar and alcohol are metabolized virtually identically in the liver and in the brain, and they both have the same hedonic tendencies. And alcohol is not a food. Alcohol is a food additive. Caffeine is not a food. Caffeine is a food additive. So why would sugar be different? Yeah, that was one of my favorite parts of the book, the part that looked at the whole dialogue surrounding what makes a food addictive and what you just said, the comparisons between sugar and alcohol and caffeine. And I get really not upset, but there's the whole intuitive eating movement and people will make the argument that people should be able to, you know, moderate their consumption of processed foods and things like that. And I, I just don't know if that's a fair challenge for people because, you know, these foods literally seem to hijack our bodies and brains and mind. I don't know if everybody can have a healthy relationship like and eat just one situation. In any case, though, this has been absolutely amazing. I've been looking forward to this interview for so much. And listeners, you've got to get Metabolical. There is just so much information in there we didn't even remotely touch on. Like We didn't even talk about... One of my favorite parts was you talk about the PI3 kinase, mTOR, AMPK combinations. That was one of my favorites. Well, good. That's that's brand new stuff, and that's not written down anywhere else. So that yeah, this is this is basically how cancer cells grow, and why sugar feeds it. I made a whole chart, and I've been staring at it. It's amazing. But two of the ones of the eight are just hypothetical, right? Because there's some there's some where like AMPK and mTOR were related. Well, AMPK turns off mTOR, so you know, so whenever AMPK is on. That means mTOR is off, whether you know it, whether there's a permutation for it or not. Exactly. So, oh, we didn't even talk about greenhouse gases. Oh, there's just so much here, or the role of archaea bacteria in our intestines. So many things. Listeners, get metabolical. Thank you so much, Dr. Lustig. The last question I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more. It better not be what I eat. It's not. It's completely different. It's because mindset is very important to me. So, what is something that you're grateful for? I'm grateful for my family because they've stuck with me through thick and thin. That is wonderful. I've abused my family, you know, not physically, but, you know, from neglect in many ways to get this work done. Well, I just imagine also all of the, just the controversy and everything that you're doing must be. um... That doesn't help. You know what really doesn't help? What really doesn't help is when my kid goes into science class and they show fed up and all the kids start teasing my kid because, you know, their dad's on the screen. Oh, man. <laughs> well, well, I am forever grateful for everything that you're doing. Any other links that you would like to put out there? We'll, we'll figure out the whole thing about the fiber supplement. Sure. So, so my, my website is robertlustig.com. There's a site for the book metabolical.com. My email address, it's rlustig at biolumen.tech. Perfect. Well, for listeners, we'll put all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much. I would love to talk to you again in the future. This is amazing. And I really look forward to your future work. This is just really, really incredible. It's been my pleasure, Melanie. Thanks for asking such good questions and being so up on this. Enjoy your day. You too. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, 
Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.